the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the Wednesday program. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And this is the Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls, answering your Bible questions, questions about stuff going on in your life, questions about church, whatever's on your heart. All you have to do is to provide the phone call, 210-340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. That's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com, or you can use our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app. As always, if you're driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the Call Now banner at the top of the screen. You'll be able to uh, connect to our studio producer uh, and be safe at the same time. Again, thanks for tuning in. Got a lot going on tonight. I'm going to be teaching a marvelous chapter, uh, Joel chapter 2. Uh, absolutely fascinating chapters. That's um, um, I try to imagine Joel receiving this prophecy and seeing things that he can't possibly understand. And remember, he didn't have the Book of Revelation to to, to help him. So um, we can look back and understand the full scope of this prophecy. And it is an absolutely amazing, a staggeringly amazing. Prophecy, so I'm going to try to do that justice tonight. That's Joel chapter 2. Paula will be live in studio with us tomorrow on the date day edition of the program. Uh, and uh, I don't know what she's going to talk about yet, but it's always interesting. And uh, with that, let's get to some of the questions that have been sent in. Now, before we get to any new questions, um, I want to. Uh, just deal with the question quickly. I'm not going to deal with the question, but this is for rejected husband. Um, uh, I've decided that, that your your question is just a little too inappropriate for a radio audience. It's not that I'm trying to avoid um, the problem. In fact, if you would email us, questions at calvarysa.com with an email address return, uh, or a phone number or something, I'd be happy to talk with you about this at length. Uh, I just didn't feel like this was a question that we ought to um, expose the audience to as you. My heart goes out to you, and um, I, there's nothing inappropriate about the question. It's just the subject matter uh, and the specificity of it that I think is inappropriate for a, a radio audience that could include uh, teens and even younger children. So, uh, rejected husband questions at calvarysa.com. And if you uh, want to talk with me or uh, have email exchange, I'd be happy to do that with you. Uh, just send it in. Okay, let's get to some questions that have been sent in here. Our first one is from Dallas. Uh, he says, 
Uh, my producer just reminded me I didn't do day four of Passion Week, and I want to do that. But the reason I didn't do it, the reason I forgot it, is because nothing really happened on Wednesday of Jesus' Passion Week. And you know what? There's part of me that thinks this is probably the most difficult day at all. It, it is thought that he probably spent the entire day uh, in Bethany uh, resting. Uh, we know what's coming up on Thursday and what's coming up, of course, on Friday. Um, but uh, there's no biblical account of any specific activities on Wednesday. This was a day of rest, a day that he desperately needed, but also, as I said, a day where his mind could really wander. Remember, Jesus was God, but he was also a human. And and oh, how his mind must have played tricks on him on that particular day uh, with nothing to occupy his time. So uh, we'll get back to this tomorrow at the, at the uh, beginning of the program with Paula tomorrow. Okay, here's a question from Dallas. Uh, he says, do you think unbelievers can have good morals? Of course. Um, I, I know some unbelieving people that don't lie. I know some unbelieving people that um, seem to be honest, in some cases honest to a fault. And I know that's a, an oxymoron, uh, but, but they can be brutally honest is what I'm getting at. Um, but yes, there's just people that are nice. There are people that pay their bills and people that work hard and people that look out for others who are not Christians. And in fact, Dallas, in some instances, um, their behavior compared to a professing Christian's behavior is exemplary and ought to bring shame to some of us who are Christians. But of course, unbelievers can have good morals. What they don't have is... Um, the righteousness of God, the, the righteousness that, that is required for people to go to heaven. So, yeah, there are people that just don't do a whole bunch of bad things. But remember what Paul writes, all have sinned. And this is in the continuous present tense. So it's literally for all continue to sin continually and are continually falling short of the glory of God. So the standard Dallas is perfection. And nobody can be perfect. Jesus will give you his perfection. But that requires a born-again relationship with Jesus Christ. So, yeah, I, I think sometimes, you know, people think that we Christians think we're better than other people. And that's simply not the case. We're not better than anybody. Um, we just know that our sins are forgiven. And Dallas, the unbeliever that you're asking about, who could be a really stand-up man or woman, um, that person is still a sinner who will stand before a perfect God knowing that there's no way to go to heaven. Every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. So yes, the question to you, the answer to the question is yes, unbelievers can have good morals and uh, I've been privileged to know some. Here's a question from Tiffany. Haven't had this question in a long time. Would you explain why Paul and Barnabas split up? It seems out of character for both of them. It really doesn't, Tiffany. Let me explain. Um, they had different giftings. They were different personalities. Uh, Barnabas, the son of consolation, he was a a, a, a man who always put people first. Um, he wanted people to walk with the Lord. He was um, willing to give people second and third chances. I mean, these are the wonderful things about Barnas, Barnabas. Paul, uh, on the other hand, was a man who was completely mission-focused. And when I say mission-focused, he was all about the business that God had called him to do, and that's sharing the gospel as the apostle to the Gentiles. Now, here's what happened. John Mark, um, young man at the time, he went with Paul and Barnabas on the first missionary journey. Um, something happened. We don't know what. It seems as though... Uh, persecution broke out against them, and maybe he was frightened. But he deserted his post. He ran away. Uh, he left them high and dry. So um, coming back before going out on the second missionary journey, um, John Mark evidently had been convicted by the Holy Spirit and wanted to go with them on the second missionary journey. And the Apostle Paul said no. We can't jeopardize the mission. We know how difficult it's going to be. We know what all of the pitfalls are. So we can't do anything to jeopardize the mission. And, and Barnabas was just the opposite. He said, no, we got to put John Mark first and give him another chance. And uh, evidently the tension between them grew 
the tension between them grew to a point where um, they they simply they could they couldn't walk together in agreement, so they decided to walk separately. And of course, Silas joined with with Paul, and Barnabas with John Mark um, would go back and and start in another direction. So that's why they split up. I don't think either one of them was out of character. I think they were both consistent with the mission that God had given them, uh, and I think. Uh, I don't think personally either one of them was wrong. Uh, I think Paul, knowing what he needed, he needed submitted and committed people uh, in order to do the work that God had called him to do. And it was time for John Mark now to prove himself again. Uh, Paul hadn't written 1 Corinthians chapter 4 first, but uh, there he writes, it's required that every man given a trust by God must prove faithful. Now later, John Mark would be restored with Paul uh, he would be useful to to the Apostle Paul. He would also be exceptionally helpful to the Apostle Peter. And so uh, he did fine. Barnabas didn't have to worry about him, and Paul didn't have to worry about him. Uh, God had John Mark in the palm of his hand. But uh, they split up just because they couldn't agree on that issue. Again, one of them, the Apostle Paul, was mission-focused, and the other one, Barnabas, more... Uh, amenable to reconciling and let's give him another chance and come on, what's the harm? And he's a young man. We don't want to discourage him. And Paul just understood that the mission was more important than than uh, John Mark's feelings at this point. Uh, again, later, God brought them all together and uh, you, you will never see or hear or have heard of Paul or Barnabas, either one of them, saying a bad word about the other. Here is a question from Rudy. Rudy says, I believe in the priesthood of believers. I think the church should value the gifts everyone has, not just the pastor or teacher. Well, Rudy, I agree with you in the sense that uh, we are a priesthood of believers. um, And the church ought to value the gifts everyone has. Uh, But I think what you're speaking about is why don't other people besides the pastor or the teacher get to talk? And the the answer is simply it's not that's not the gift people have. You know, we've got some people at our church. I mean, wonderful men and women, both who um, we've watched their gifts and treasured their gifts. They're such wonderful value to us over the years. But but they don't have the gift of teaching. Uh, They haven't been called by God to be a pastor. And so the the fact that, that, and I'll just use our church as an example, Rudy, the fact that I'm the pastor, that was an appointment by God. And uh, we want everybody to use their gifts because we are a priesthood of believers. Uh, it's just that not everybody's gift is public. Um, not everybody is gifted by the Holy Spirit to teach or to pastor. Not everybody has the same heart for the people of God as the pastor ought to have. And so um, the fact that we have a, a pastor who is doing most of the teaching, in our case, me, um, doesn't mean at all that I'm not valuing the gifts that uh, God has given to the other people in church. So uh, I, I I assume that was the point you were making, Rudy. If I am cor- incorrect, I'm sorry. But that's the best way I can approach that question uh, based on uh, what I understand your question to be. You know, there's a whole bunch of, of um, talk online these days about how in a church we need to value everybody's opinion and everybody should get a chance to share. And that's simply not the New Testament example. The New Testament example given to us for the way church is to be run is Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 42. And, uh, you know, it says that the, the church prospered, thrived, because they clung to the apostles' doctrine, but it was the apostles who were teaching the doctrine. And the idea that when we come to church, everybody should have an equal opportunity to have a public ministry uh, is, is, is more Western in culture, certainly, than it is biblical in its source. So um, I hope that, that makes sense to you. 
340-9585, that's area code 210, or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. We'd love your phone calls on this Wednesday. Here's a question from Brian. Pastor Ron, what is your basis, or I'm sorry, what is the basis of your statement that the Bible is the Word of God? How could I be sure? You know, Brian, one of the things, and I'm, I'm completely aware of this, and this isn't... Um, I think we need to be aware of how people perceive us. I'm very certain. And and me being so certain terrifies some people. It angers and frustrates other people because they have doubts. And, well, I just don't know how he can be so sure. Well, I'm sure uh, because God has demonstrated to me that his word, the Bible is his word. He wrote it. It's perfect. It's inerrant. It is without contradiction. Uh, it is consistent, 66 books written uh, by 40 different authors over a period of a time of about 1,500 years uh, w- without any discrepancy at all. Um, uh, and then the, the internal witness of the Spirit um, that you get when you proceed that. You see the change that has occurred uh, in people's lives. Uh, from my perspective as a Bible teacher, Brian, Uh, What I get to do is watch the Word of God as I teach it. People that are exposed to it are changed, radically, radically changed. That's only possible by the power of God. I had a meeting today, uh, this afternoon, with a young man who's been in our church now for, uh, I think, just under four years. Uh, and clearly there's a calling in his life, a pastoral calling. He's he, he's also gifted as an evangelist. And, and this young man who comes from a very troubled background, um, boy, he just picked up the, the, the ball and started run with, running with it when he got saved. And he just, God demonstrated to him that the Word of God, the Bible was the Word of God. He believed it, and to have seen his life change so radically. Now, we're not talking about four months. We're talking four years to see the effect that that the Word of God has had on his wife and on their marriage, to see God moving in their lives, uh, leaves me with absolutely no doubt. Again, I want to emphasize, I completely am aware that that infuriates people because they have doubt. So let me talk about how you can satisfy those doubts. First, dig into the Bible. Find out why it is what it is. How do we know? And the manuscript evidence is overwhelming. We have more pieces of manuscripts, of especially the New Testament, but also the Old Testament. The Old Testament, of course, uh, is, is uh, well-established. Um, but we've got so much evidence, manuscript evidence. We have more manuscript evidence than any other historic piece of literature ever written. I mean, the, the, the number keeps changing because they keep finding more. But but the last time I saw it was more than 6,000 consistent pieces of manuscript evidence. You can piece them all together and you can find out what the original autograph said. And that's what we've done. And that's overwhelming. This isn't just something that somebody wrote and, and came up with to try to fool people. The manuscript evidence historically is overwhelming. It's also true that the archaeological evidence is overwhelming. With every turn of the archaeologist's spade, uh, the Bible has been vindicated and validated um, by their discoveries. Uh, for example, and this is just one, you know, for many, many years, uh, the idea that, that there was a city of Nineveh that Jonah went to, uh, a great city. Uh, we estimate that the population of Nineveh exceeded a half million people. And archaeologists said, well, that's impossible because there's never been any discovery of a city that big. Well, that was all discovered. And, and irrefutable evidence Uh uh, all because of of the persistence of the archaeologists looking, and the the Bible has been vindicated uh, by the by archaeologists. Um, uh, I think for me personally, as a as a new believer, the prophetic um, proof um, the Bible is the only book in the world that that says we're going to tell the future of the whole world. 
and we're going to say, okay, this is this is where we are. This is what's going to happen. And when those things happen, I mean, if those things didn't happen, we can immediately disqualify the Bible. And if we look at, and I'm going to use just a general number here, but in excess of 90% of all the prophecies in Scripture have been fulfilled precisely as predicted, and the the, the less than 10% that remains unfulfilled uh, all points to the, the the second coming of Jesus Christ and the, the 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 last days that we're living in, and so they're not fulfilled in yet because they haven't part of Joel tonight. Uh, it goes all the way down to the 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 end of the age, uh, and and uh, I think reasonably we can assume that if more than ninety percent of the prophecies have been fulfilled exactly, the ten or less percent that remains unfulfilled and deals with the end of the end, I think we can reasonably assume that those things are also going to be fulfilled uh, precisely. No other religious book ever tries to tell the future. And and by, by putting um, his reputation on the line like this, God is simply saying, look, prove me that I'm wrong. If you can find one prophecy that hasn't come true exactly as I predicted it, then this isn't the word of God. And I think that's really uh, basically what it is. The last is the spiritual evidence, Brian. Uh, you can see the effect of the Word of God. No other book in the history of the world has had the impact on the world that the Bible has. You know, it's the best-selling book by far. Uh, I mean, n- nothing is even in the same stratosphere. Uh, the Bible uh, has been tried to be destroyed by haters of God from the beginning of time, and the Bible keeps proliferating, and those haters of God seem to just fade away. Um, but the spiritual evidence, like the young man that I mentioned I had a meeting with today, um, um, you, you can't deny that this is an entirely different man than the, the young man four years ago that I met, whose life was an absolute disaster. You you look at this man and he just screams Jesus at you. Well, that's the spiritual evidence. And Brian, what I want people to do is find out for themselves whether or not the Bible is the word of God. I don't want anybody to take my word for it. I want them to find out for themselves. And the way you find out for yourself is to examine the evidence, but you also say, Lord, reveal the truth to me. That's what happened to me. Uh, I didn't understand how God could write a book and men could write a book. It made no sense to me, and I'd never opened a Bible before I got saved. And yet, every time I had a question, the answer began with, well, the Bible says, and it didn't make sense to me. I needed to make sure that the Bible was reliable as a document. And I remember the conversation I had with the Lord. God, I want to believe. I'm looking for answers. But I need to know that I can trust your Bible Is it your word? Show me. If it's not your word, show me that. And I began the process of finding out. And uh, in the process of finding out, God changed my entire perspective on life, on who he was, what he came to do. Uh, He just unveiled this beautiful story about Jesus from Genesis 1-1 all the way to Revelation 22-21. And I made that uh, the, the mission of my life, and it took just under three months when I finally got to that place where the evidence was so overwhelming. I've told this story on this show before, but I was at a school of theology library, a very liberal school of theology. It was where I studied in Claremont, California. And I studied literally 8 to 10 to 12 hours a day at times. And uh, I, I remember... Um, getting to the place where it was, I was in a room all by myself, books piled up on the table. And I remember very specifically, it was as though Jesus was in the room with me. Nothing weird happened, but it was as though he was in the room with me. And he asked me a question. I had There was a question I had. I found the answer. And, and it was as though he was looking at me and saying, okay, do you believe it yet? And I was completely convinced And Brian, from that moment forward, my life was never the same, nor will yours be. But you've got to be personally convinced of that. Now, there's a lot of material. Uh, Josh McDowell wrote a book, The New Evidence That Demands a Verdict. He wrote Evidence That Demands a Verdict, but there's a newer uh, edition of it. 
Uh, it'll tell you how we got our Bible. Um, it, it'll it'll talk to you about how we can demonstrate that it's true. I think most of the time, Brian, the people that won't accept this challenge to find out on their own, they don't want to find out it's the Word of God because the Bible tells us a bunch of stuff we got to stop doing or a bunch of stuff we want to do that we can no longer do. And when when we get to that place, we've got a choice to make, and it's easier just to have doubt. The problem is the man who doubts or the woman who doubts is never going to make a decision about anything. And the best they can hope for is to be that double-minded man or double-minded woman that James talks about, unstable in all our ways. And what we need to do is, is make a decision. Do I really want to know the answer? And if we approach God with that kind of honesty, I promise you, Brian, and anybody else listening to this program today, I promise you beyond any doubt at all, God will reveal to you the truth. Then you're accountable to live it. And that's when you walk into the abundant life that Jesus promised We've got 30 minutes left in the program, 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. This is The Word to Stand Up for Life. I'll be back in two minutes. Welcome back to The Word to Stand On for Life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the second half of the Wednesday show. The phones have been quiet, so we'd love your calls and questions. 340-9585. Here's a question from Terry. Uh, why does God allow innocent children to get cancer and other terminal illnesses? Terry, good things and bad things happen to everybody. Grown-ups, children, everybody in between, uh, Christians, uh, unbelievers, good things and bad things happen to everybody. We can't blame God for that. Now, God could stop it, and one day he's going to do that when he restores uh, the, the earth when he restores justice to this world. But the reality is God promised that if they ate, Adam and Eve ate from the tree that was forbidden for them to eat from, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they would begin to die. Surely you will die. And death entered the world at that point, and people have been dying ever since. And I, I don't think it's reasonable Imagine if God would just say, okay, you know what? I'm going to stop allowing all my kids to get sick. So I'm just going to let the other kids, the kids that don't know me or the kids of unbelievers, well, I'm going to let them get sick. Of course, that's not who God is. We live in a fallen world. Death, disease, illness is a part of this fallen world. And um, heartbreak is part of the curse. So it's... I think a misunderstanding to expect that God is going to prevent things that he said would happen, things that he knew would happen. You know, his son was innocent, and he didn't stop his own son's murder. And he did it because he valued you and me. So instead of saying, well, why do bad things happen to good people? Why does God let little children suffer all over the world? Children have been suffering from the beginning of time, and the reason they're suffering is because of sin in this world. That's the only reason. God didn't cause it. It's not what God wanted. God, remember, created a paradise for man to live in. None of the things that we see happening all the time, none of those things had to happen. But he died. And Sunday we're going to celebrate the fact that he didn't stay dead. And he has an answer for all of those painful things that we deal with. Here's a question from JJ. Why is it wrong for gay couples to have or adopt children? Um, JJ, remember Jesus said, Woe to the one who makes one of my little ones stumble. It would be better for that man never to have been born or that woman never to have been born. 
Um, and that's why it's wrong for gay couples to have or adopt children. You know, I get the the emotional. Well, well, kids don't have a home. Surely they're better off in a in a gay home than in a or a, a state run home or or an abusive home. Um, we can't raise children to believe that wrong things are right. We can't allow children to be in an environment where they're taught that things that are going to separate them from God forever are okay. And certainly that's what we're doing. If we supported gay couples adopting children or, or, excuse me, I'm sorry, or, or having children, um, if we supported that, what we'd be saying is, look, it's okay to raise a child who's always going to believe that something that displeases God is okay. And we simply can't do that. So it is wrong for gay couples to have children or adopt children, period, because they're, they're going to be accountable to God for the way they, they uh, raise those children and to raise them in a, in a immoral sense where uh, people are going to um, rebel against God. It just makes no sense at all. So, yeah, it's, it's wrong, uh, and that's why it's wrong. Um, I think most of the time, J.J., uh, our why questions directed uh, about the things God's already established are, are questions better not to be asked. Um, God determines what's right and what's wrong. Uh, we're supposed to say, uh, okay, God, we're your people. We agree. And it is a tragedy. It's a tragedy, J.J., that there are people out there who profess to love Jesus, who profess to be uh, on their way to heaven, it is a tragedy that they would have a disagreement with God. They can disagree with me and they can disagree with you. But as a Christian, we cannot disagree with God. We simply can't. I'm getting these questions about these social issues. This one is from Donald. Why is it that Christians are so focused on homosexuality, but not on other common sins like laziness, gluttony, etc.? Um, Donald, I don't, I don't know Christians that aren't focused on those sins. Now, uh, the lazy man or the lazy woman's not trying to get me to accept his laziness. He's not trying to get me to affirm his laziness. The, the glutton is not trying to get me to, to affirm and say, no, go ahead and be a glutton. You can go ahead and be obese and, and all of that's okay. But homosexuals are. Transgenders are. They're trying to pound their way into forcing people to say that the lifestyle choices they are making are okay when they're not okay. And I've never had a lazy man or woman or a, uh, somebody guilty of gluttony. Um, I've never had one of those people come to me and say, um, I demand that you affirm my laziness or my gluttony. I've never had that happen. And yet with gay people, with transgender people now, um, we've all had that happen a whole bunch of times. So it's just, I mean, it's pretty straightforward. Um, we're focused on homosexuality because we want those men and women who are gay, we want them to come to heaven. And the only way they're going to come to heaven is to get born again and repent. In other words, change their lives. And they don't want to do that. They want to keep sinning. And that's okay. That's a choice that God allows them to make. But what they have to do, Donald, is live with the consequences of that. And it's very easy to say. It's very arrogant to say, well, I'll stand before God and give him a piece of my mind or, or I'm okay with that. I, I'm brave. I want to be consistent to who I truly am. Um, but it's another thing to say that when they're standing before a holy God. Very important, Donald. We focus on Whatever sin the Bible says is sin. I talk about anger. I talk about unforgiveness. I talk about the abuse that goes on, um, both physical and emotional abuse in marriages. Um, we talk about drunkenness and, and people that use drugs. The Bible says to be sober and vigilant. So we talk about all the sins. 
It's just the rest of the world and the rest of the people in the world, they're the ones who are focused on these two sins because they're not going to rest on, until people like me say what they're doing is okay, we love you, you're going to heaven, and God's okay with it. The problem with that, Donald, is that it's not okay and we would be lying and misrepresenting the Lord. Let me take a break. Okay. This has been, been some contentious questions. Here's an anonymous question. Why would God take Martin Luther to heaven if he hated Jews? Um, pretty sure Martin Luther is going to be in heaven. Um, God used him in spite of his imperfection. And anonymous, I imagine God is using you in spite of your imperfection. Your sin may be different than his. But remember, the blood of Jesus covers all sin. And, uh, you know, we might think, well, why would God use somebody who who is so flawed? Um, the answer is, well, why would he use me? I'm the most flawed person listening to this program or participating in this program today. And yet God has chosen to use me, and I'm so grateful to him, and I'm going to heaven. Now, I hate the sin of prejudice. And especially this anti-Semitism is always from the devil. Always. The devil hates Jews. He's tried to destroy them. Uh, he will keep trying to destroy them until the very end. Um, but of course, God's not going to let that happen. Uh, and so when you see somebody that is anti-Semitic, at the core of that is a doctrine of demons. And Martin Luther, clearly, if anybody has read his writings, he hated Jews, he called them the murders of Christ, and rejected any possibility that God could use them. And yet we know the Bible says differently. So on that issue, Martin Luther was seriously and tragically wrong. Um, and yet God used him. And I want to be the man, the imperfect man that God can continue to use. So let me just say this. All prejudice, all prejudice, God hates and Christians, when we're born again, whether you're Martin Luther living at the time he did or you're, you're Pastor Ron living at the time I do, all prejudice offends God and needs to be repented of. If you are holding on to prejudice for people based on where they come from, what they look like, or the differences that, that they represent from you, then you're being controlled by a doctrine of demons. You're not demon-possessed. Tragically, there are lots of Christians who are prejudiced. Paul and I have been together for 53 years. We've lived through prejudice being a mixed marriage. We've lived through that kind of prejudice for our whole lives. You know what? It didn't get any better when we got saved. There's still people in the church who don't think I'm fit to preach the gospel because I'm married to a black woman. Prejudice is from the enemy. And if you're harboring prejudice, there's no power in your life, there's no joy in your life because you've just excused the Holy Spirit. Now, he hasn't left you because he promised he wouldn't, but he can't empower you because you've disconnected from the source of power. Love matters more than anything else. Now, love is an acceptance Love is agreeing with God about what is and is not love. So, um, again, I'm pretty sure Martin Luther is going to be in heaven. God used him wonderfully. Um, but, but one of the questions that I'd like to ask him, now this is a very fleshy thing to say, but one of the questions I'd like to ask him is, what were you thinking? And he's probably going to look at me if I get that opportunity and say, well, I haven't heard that one before because, I mean, Jesus was a Jew. If Israel, Jews, were God's chosen people, who is Martin Luther to exclude them? And he did. He did. Here's a question from, oh, got a phone call. Okay, let me go to the lines here. Got Cindy on line one. Cindy, thank you for calling. You're on the air. Welcome. Hi, Pastor Ron. How are you doing today? Cindy, I'm doing really well. Thank you very much. Glad to hear that. Your voice sounds good. Thanks. i got to use it I, again tonight, so I hope so. 
Oh, I'll be there. <laughs> I was watching <laughs> one of the new episodes of The Chosen last night, and it showed Jesus, and he was surrounded by a pretty large group of people, and he was healing them just one after another. And it made me think about this scripture in one of the Gospels that says, and that he performed so many miracles, they all couldn't be written. There's mm-hmm. no book big enough to write them in. And it made me think about how amazing and phenomenal that must have been to have people getting healed like that. Because we go to a doctor, and we can pretty much get better, and we can find out what's wrong. But back then, they didn't have that medical uh expertise to be able to find out, well, why is this wrong? Or, you know, it's obvious if they couldn't see or, you know, something was really wrong, but they they really didn't know, which meant they probably didn't get better. But to have that many people just healed, what an impact that must have been. And that's just kind of really not a question, just an observation of of just how incredible it must have been when when he was on earth. So that's all I had, really. Bye. Thank you, Cindy. I love the comment. Bye-bye. I love the comment because I, I I I really thought they the way they demonstrated or the way they portrayed that scene uh, was was wonderful. You know, we think Jesus is touching people and healing them, but power continually going from. Remember when the woman with the issue of blood just touched him his robe, and he felt power or virtue. The King James says going from him. Um, um, the the physical drain that had to be for Jesus um, is something we can't possibly understand. And this crowd that was pressing in and pressing in as he healed multitudes, multitudes of people. We know in, in some cases, entire regions, all of the people that were sick were healed. And the way they, they portrayed that scene, I thought was really, really... Excellent. My other thought, Cindy, um, is this. You said, you know, people would see him doing all those miracles, and yet those miracles didn't convince anybody that Jesus was the Son of God. They all rejected him at the end. So miracles don't save anybody. Uh, Jesus was willing, by doing miracles to people he knew would reject him, Jesus was willing to be taken advantage of. And how it must have hurt his heart when people would rejoice and praise God. And Jesus, of course, knew that many were going to walk away from him. Hard thing. I also think of the uh, time in his own hometown where he could not do many miracles there because of their unbelief. How that would have broken his heart. Hard stuff. Thank you, Cindy. Appreciate it. Let's go to Ruben on line one from Sagin, or line two from Sagin. Ruben, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hi, Pastor Ron. Um, I along with Cindy, hi, Ruben. Uh, uh, how you, how you doing, sir? Good. That's good. That's good. I'm sorry. Um, I along like Cindy. Uh, although she said she watched that show, but I was contemplating because um, I'm reading in the Book of John. Um, I paused uh, before they they captured him because I already kind of know what's going on because I've read it like mm-hmm. ten times already. So mm-hmm. I just reread one through uh, thirteen, I think. So my not my question. Well, yeah, my question is this: like after, I mean, this guy Jesus feeds. And I, I shouldn't have said that. Forgive me, Lord. Jesus feeds thousands of people he does all these miracles and um i bet you there are some things that we don't even know that he did because they're not written right um Mm -hmm, so i the other day met a jew i've never met i mean here in my area never ever met a jew and Hmm. she was telling me because when i got to like Religion said, well, what's your religious point? She goes, well, I'm Jewish. I'm not Christian. I don't believe in Jesus. And, and I'm like, well, how can that be? I mean, <laughs> Jesus came, how, you know, Jesus came to your people. He saved your people out of Egypt. And he did all these things for your people. Why is it that you cannot, you don't believe in Jesus? She couldn't really give me an answer. So I want to ask you, 
Jesus did everything for the Jews. So why don't they believe that he's the Messiah, that he's God? Listen to this, Reuben. Second Corinthians chapter 3. I'm, I'm, I'm not thinking, it's not, is that chapter 3? I can't see. Two, uh, yes. Okay, 2 Corinthians 3, verse 15 says, Even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. Now, that's a reference, of course, to the veil in the temple that separated the Holy of Holies from the, most, from the holy place. Uh, and, and that was at Jesus' death. That's the, the veil that was torn from top to bottom. And, and he's saying, metaphorically, even to this day. And, and this extends to the day that we live in. A veil covers their hearts. And then he says this in the next verse. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, that veil is removed or that veil is taken away. So um, Jews can't believe because they don't want to believe. Um, they, they've been deceived. The hardness of heart until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. That's going to continue to grow in these last days. And then after the rapture of the church, of course, God is again, again going to turn his attention to Israel. And we know from the prophet Zechariah that one third of the people are going to recognize that they killed their Christ. And uh, they're going to they're going to mourn. Uh, what can we do? And and one third of them are going to get saved. But individual Jews, they have to believe by faith just like you do and just like I do. And if they don't believe by faith, Reuben, uh, that veil stays there. One of the ways that I pray for Jews in particular is, Lord, all they have to do is take a little tiny turn toward Jesus and that veil will be removed and they'll be able to see what's true. And when they're able to see what's true, then the Spirit of God will take over. And, And believe it or not, Reuben, there are lots and lots and lots of Jews all over the world that are coming to a saving faith in Jesus Christ, their Messiah. Um, Interesting comment. I heard Dennis Prager, who is a talk show host. I think most of you on this station know him, um, but uh, he's a talk show host and has a a daily program on um, KLUP, The Loop here, um, which is a sister station to KSLR. Um, and and he was asked by some, by one of his guests, so um, when you see your Messiah, when he comes, what's the first question you're going to ask him? And Dennis, without hesitating, he said, that's easy. I'm going to ask him, have you been here before? See, he's been told by so many people that Jesus was the Messiah. I'm going to ask, have you been here before? Well, faith is the way that we overcome that veil that covers our hearts. And, you know, they've got rabbis' explanations for all the suffering servant passages. And, and uh, you know, they, they just simply refuse to believe what's there before them. And nothing has changed because that's exactly the, the obstacle that the first century church, the apostles, ran into when they began sharing Jesus Christ. You know, we read about 3,000 men getting saved and then 5,000 more getting saved. Uh, that, that's, that's not in count, including women and children. We think, wow, they were taking over. But no, there were many, many, many more who didn't get saved. And their hearts got harder and harder, and they persecuted Paul, just like Paul was persecuting Christians at the beginning. Um, The veil has to be removed. And for the Apostle Paul, as Saul of Tarsus, the veil was removed when he saw Jesus. Thank you. I hope that answers your question, Ruben. It's always really good to hear from you, my friend. Got time, I think, maybe for another question. Let's see this one. Here's what I can do. This one is from Alexander. He says, I've asked God to change me so I wouldn't keep repeating my sins, but he hasn't. What should I do? Uh, Alexander, you need to change. God's already changed you if if you've become a born-again believer. He's provided the presence of the Holy Spirit in your heart. He's provided the power to change. You've got to take the initiative to change. And by that, I mean you've got to learn to hate your sin. You know, for somebody to sit around and say, God, change me, change my sins. I don't want to do this anymore. God would say, well, how about you walk with me then? 
And I can tell you, Alexander, what you're not doing, you're not studying the Word of God. You're not repenting of your sins. I mean, you may feel remorse for them, but you're not really repenting. And you haven't decided yet that you hate your sin so much because it's separating you from the, the intimate fellowship God wants to have. Because if you would get to that place where you, I, Lord, I hate my sin. I don't want to do this anymore. Then you would walk in the light instead of in the darkness. The idea, and this is again so Western in origin, we, we have this idea that, okay, well, Lord, now that I belong to you, just take away all these temptations and all these desires. God never takes those things away. What he does is he gives you the power to deal with those sins. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13 says, No temptation has seized you except that which is common to man, and God is faithful. Alexander doesn't say you're faithful. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear, and when you're tempted, he'll always provide a way out. In other words, you can overcome the temptation. And he's waiting for you to partner with him. And the only way that you're going to partner with him is to decide, I'm going to walk with Jesus. I'm going to say no to my flesh. I'm going to say no to sin so that I can say yes to Jesus every single day. And when we get to that place, Alexander, you're going to have victory over the sin. You already have it. It's been given to you if you're a born-again Christian. But too many of us are living defeated lives because we simply don't have the faith to believe. You've got to hate sin. It's the only way you can love Jesus enough. Alexander, thank you for the question. Thanks for tuning in today. You've been listening to the Word to Stand Up for Life. Remember, Paula is coming tomorrow on the Date Day edition of the show. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. Lord willing, I'll be back with Paula tomorrow at 4 o'clock on AM 630 The Word. We'll see you then. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.